Okay. Uh, you can take your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 17. This week we're finally getting back on track with our study through Revelation. We were away from it for a couple of weeks over spring break um, when Garrett Walden taught in my absence. I mentioned that last week. I hope that you've been able to go back to the podcast and, and listen to what he shared those two weeks that I was away. Um, I, you'll be very, very encouraged. He spoke once from Hebrews 10 and another from John chapter 10. Uh, and I assure you that it, you'll be blessed if you do go back and listen to those. And then last week, because we were still a week ahead of schedule in our study, uh, I took an opportunity to teach on the attributes of God, um, which feature, I mean, they feature so prominently throughout the scriptures, but particularly in, um, in the book of Revelation. And we considered two attributes in particular, God's eternity and God's omnipresence, his in infinity as it pertains, pertains to time and space. That's also up on the podcast if you want to give that a listen. But um, that being said, we're, we're back in uh, our study through Revelation today. And, um, and just to review a little bit about what I said uh, last Sunday, um, when we come to chapter 17, we are coming to the beginning of, an, of, of another section in, in Revelation. Remember, I've told you that Revelation is written in a, in a cyclical fashion with seven different sections uh, comprising the book. And uh, when we come to chapter 17, we're coming to another one of those sections, and it's the next to last section in the book. The fancy word for that is the penultimate uh, section of the book. And this section will run from chapter 17 to chapter 19. And then the last section will be, of course, chapters 20 to 22. The significance of that we will especially see when we get to chapter 20, just a preview of coming attractions, uh, when chapter 20 talks about the, the 1,000-year reign of Christ or, or the millennial reign, the millennium. You hear that talked about when discussions of Revelation come up. Um, those who read Revelation in a chronologically linear fashion, what I mean by that is chapter 4 happened after chapter 3 and chapter 5 happened after chapter 4 and so forth and so on, they will get to chapter 20, and, uh, and, and they will read about a 1,000-year reign of Christ. Well, first of all, they'll get to chapter 19, and they'll read about the second coming of Jesus. And then they'll get to chapter 20, and they'll read about a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the, on the earth. And they, they, the assumption then will be, because they read it in a chronologically linear fashion, that this 1,000-year reign of Christ will happen after he comes again, because chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, you see. Uh, but um, if you understand that Revelation was not written in that chronologically linear fashion, but in a cyclical fashion, where you have the same story being retold over and over and over again seven times, you realize that a section ends in chapter 19 with the return of Christ, and chapter 20 begins a brand new section. And so, uh, the preview of coming attractions is that in that view, the 1,000-year reign of Christ is not something that happens after he comes again, but is something that happens before he comes again, which is right now, all right? So um, we'll say more about that when we get to that chapter, but this is the section that commences this next to last 
section. And we'll see a bit of evidence today in this, in this chapter about the fact that he is, he is reigning even now uh, on the earth. But um, it's also good to, at this, before we read the chapter, it's a good uh, time to, say, to remember the fact that at the midpoint of this study, um, at midfield of Revelation was around chapter 12. And in chapter 12, the focus of the book shifted just so slightly. Um, up to that point, the focus in Revelation had been very earthy. It had been very uh, focused on the church in the world and the persecution and the hardship the church faces in the world and has since the, since the first coming of Christ. But then when, when you get to chapter 12, the, the tone and the focus shifts just so slightly. It's not like the focus leaves the persecuted church, but it also pulls back the curtain a little bit to show you the, the heavenly and spiritual battle that is going on, which gives rise to and causes and is, is, is what's going on behind the scenes of that earthly struggle of the church in the world. And, um, and we'll see that certainly in this chapter. All right, let's... That's enough intro. Let's read the chapter, and then, uh, and then we, will, we will pray and dive into it. Follow along with me as I read chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the, who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, or technically witnesses, of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. By the way, that's very hard to understand. <laughs> Just go ahead and tell you. This calls for a mind with wisdom, that is for sure. Uh... The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, 
It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and of handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we confess every week, we confess again this morning our faith that what we just read is your holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And yes, Lord, I'm... I'm heartened that we can still confess that your word is clear even when we just read one of the hardest paragraphs in the whole Bible for us to understand because even with that, the, the main points of this chapter are so crystal clear. And Lord, I pray then that you would still give us eyes to see those clear truths, give us minds to understand them, uh, give, us, give us hearts to embrace and be... Uh, and, and love and cherish those truths that you, that you show us and give us wills to obey whatever it is that you call us to heed. And Lord, give me the help that I need to teach. And please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit says to us in these words. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is a fascinating, but as I've already alluded to, very difficult chapter to understand. Um, there are... Plenty of details that could occupy us for a very long time. And commentators from one end of the spectrum to the other are not agreed on what many of this means. That was and is not and is to come. And there's an eighth that belongs to the seventh. And it's just difficult. Some of this is very, very difficult. So we don't have time to dive into all of those. I don't even have a good answer for you on some of those things. Uh, but we are going to hit the high spots of this chapter and get the big picture of what John is conveying because that is very clear. And so in the time that we have this morning, there are three things that I want us to see from it. I'm not going to tell you what all three are uh, right now. I'll tell you what the first is, and then we'll move through it, and I'll tell you what they are as, as we come. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that I think is emphasized in this chapter early on is this truth. Don't judge by appearances. Don't judge by appearances. Now, let's see how I see that in this text. Okay, so the chapter begins with a description that is given to John in the chapter. Technically, what we see here is a vision within a vision. It's a vision within a larger vision because this whole book, this whole book is one sustained vision. 
It's one sustained revelation. That's why it's called revelation singular. Don't say revelations. That's like calling it Walmarts. It's just it's one revelation. And so the vision that he's given here is a, is a vision within this broader sustained revelation. Um, uh, and so and that begins in verse 3. He's going to be carried deeper into a revelation. And what we read here, is, it follows the typical pattern uh, in, in apocalyptic passages like this one. You have the vision or the dream, and it's followed immediately by some kind of explanation uh, of that dream or vision. And sometimes the, the explanation is still not altogether clear, but sometimes they are. Um, we'll describe a bit more about the vision in just a minute, but here at the outset, I want to draw your attention to two particularly noteworthy um, details. And the first one I want to draw your attention to at the, is at the outset of the vision in verse 3. This is right before, right as John is about to be carried deeper into the vision. Notice carefully what he says in verse 3. He says of the angel he referenced in the first verse, he says of the angel, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. So the, the Holy Spirit right there, you see the Holy Spirit is the vision revealer. He carried me away in the spirit. That's the language that was used in the first chapter of this broader uh, uh, vision. When John said in chapter 1 verse 10, I was, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And, and the vision came. Um, but notice the idea in verse 3 that John was, as he put it, carried away into a wilderness. What is significant about that? Um, well, to think about that, do me a favor. Hold your place here in chapter 17. And uh, let me draw you, go back to chapter 12. Let me draw your attention back to something in chapter 12. Um, in chapter 12, you might remember if you were here, when we studied this chapter, we, what we saw big picture in that church, what, in that chapter was the church, the people of God, symbolized as a woman. Now, disclaimer, in chapter 17, when we come back to it, we're going to meet another woman, and it's most definitely not the same women. <laughs> uh, the woman we'll see in chapter 17 is not the woman of chapter 12, which will be very apparent. But here in chapter 12, the woman was symbolic of the people of God, of the, of the church. And notice again in chapter 12 what we saw in verse 6. And the woman fled, where? Into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So where did it say the woman fled? Into the wilderness, presumably into a place of hardship, into a place of persecution, but a place where at the same time she will be protected and nourished by God and provided for. So in chapter 12, the revelation to John described the church, the people of God, in a sense, being in a wilderness of hardship and persecution. That persecution and hardship was figuratively described as a wilderness. Now, Turning back to chapter 17, when, when in verse 3, John says he was carried away in this vision into a wilderness, I think the, the symbolism carries over. I think that it's, it is symbolizing the same and that John himself, too, carried me away into a wilderness. He was there with the people of God in this place of desolation and persecution. I mean, he was, he was uh, quite literally and physically at the time he wrote this, exiled 
on the island of Patmos as a, as a punishment for bearing witness to Christ. So quite literally in a wilderness, but figuratively too. Uh, and that the, the church is, 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 until Jesus comes back, will be in that wilderness. But that's the first noteworthy detail I want to point out right here at the beginning. That as the vision opens, it opens with a reminder that John and the rest of the church, as we wait on the return of Christ, are in a wilderness of persecution and hardship. That's the appearance. That's, that is what we see. That's, that's what's apparent to us when we look around the world. There, there's hardly a... Few are the places in the world where the church is just flourishing by, by outward standards in revivalism. I mean, the, the, the church or wherever it's happening, the hardship is coming down hard. Okay? Uh, the world is coming down hard. It's a persecuted and beleaguered church, even where it's flourishing. So, that's the first thing. That's the appearance. But I, I use the word appearance not because it's not real. It's real. But I use the word appearance because of the second noteworthy detail that I want to draw your attention to in the prelude to the vision. And that is this. Don't overlook the significant fact that this vision, according to verse 1, is given to John by, quote, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Who had the seven bowls. Now, that should ring a bell for you because it was just in the last chapter. And I know it was a month ago that we studied the last chapter. But in the last chapter, that we saw those, set, those bowls being poured out. Those, and what did those bowls represent? They represented the final wrath and judgment of God. Remember, you had, throughout Revelation, you had, you had, um, seven, you had seals on, seven seals on a scroll. You had seven trumpets. You got seven bowls. The trumpets, the seven trumpets were warning signs that a judgment is coming throughout history. The bowls were the coming of that final judgment. Trumpets blow and they warn, bowls are poured out, right? And so, but that, that, that's, that's significant here because you put these two details together and it may appear, in fact, and in fact be that in the present time, the church, even where it is flourishing, is persecuted in the world. But this vision, even in the prelude to it, is reminding us not to... To, to make no mistake and to forget that the church's persecutors are being judged by the Lord uh, and that their condemnation is increasing with every persecution and that they will be inevitably, unmistakably, and unavoidably judged at the return of Christ. In fact, we're told down in verse 14 that all the ungodly forces in the world will make war on the Lamb, but in the next breath and in that same verse we're reminded that they will not succeed. The Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, chosen, called and chosen and faithful. We'll see toward the, the, the end of the chapter that, that God's judgment on His enemies actually are going to begin prior to His coming again, which is, again, why I believe this thousand-year reign of Christ is going on right now. Um, and it begins here in a, in, a, in a very interesting way. But before we get to that, we need to think about about um, what appear to be two important characters in this. I, I, some people might interpret them as, as two different characters. I'm going to submit that they are sort of one and the same, but the, the, the two names given to them are maybe even in the heading of this chapter in your Bible, the great prostitute and the beast. Let's try to understand what that's referring to. So you see the, the great prostitute mentioned in verse 1. 
the great prostitute. And then verse 3, the scarlet beast is mentioned. Uh, you might remember when we, when we see the language of the beast, you might remember that back in chapter 13, when we ch- studied chapter 13, that we, there were two beasts that were mentioned. And um, the first of those two beasts in chapter 13, we were told in chapter 13, verse 1, that first beast was arising out of the sea. Arising out of the sea, uh, came out of the sea. And remember, in that chapter, that, that beast represented all peoples and, and nations and sometimes represented by their governments, specifically those that oppress the church and stand against Christ and the Christian faith. But that said, I don't think it's insignificant that in verse 1, this enemy is described as being seated on many waters. In chapter 13, that was coming out of the sea. Here it's seated on many waters. And then if you look down at verse 15, we're told that the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So the, 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 the imagery is the same, just like the beast coming out of the sea in chapter 13. And if you look at verse 3, the, the, the woman, the woman or the prostitute, that's the same, called a woman in verse 3, called a great prostitute uh, in verse 1 and other verses, uh, is said to be sitting on a scarlet beast. And so I don't take that the prostitute and the beast are two different entities. Um, the, scarlet, the scarlet beast that the prostitute is sitting on represents the structures of the nations, the structures, the governmental structures of the cultures and the nations of the world, and the woman or the prostitute represents everything within those nations, everything within those structures and cultures that seduce and lure people away from Christ. Um, Notice in verse 4 that she is finely arrayed, it says, in every good and luxury that the world had to offer purple. Why purple and scarlet? Because those were very expensive dyes to make because to make them required hard to get materials. And so it was, it, purple was uh, only worn by uh, the, the, the wealthy and the well-to-do. But scarlet and purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. Flip over to the next chapter. Uh, look at chapter 18 verses 11 to 13. Look at the description. When this enemy is judged, the judgment is coming, or at least uh, being prophesied in chapter 18. Look at the description of this same enemy. Verses 11 to 13, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. I mean, this, when you read it out loud, this, the, 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 the image falls heavy on you. So with that more, more elaborate description in chapter 17, go back, 18, go back to chapter 17. The image of the great prostitute sitting on the scarlet beast represents 
everything in the world. That's why you have these elaborate descriptions, these fine goods, these luxurious things that, that, uh, that, that, that entice people, draw people away from the Lord. How so? To cause people to worship the creature rather than the creator. To worship the things of the creation rather than the creator. To tempt them with the idea of heaven on earth, which is a farce. And also notice in verse 4 of chapter 17 that this prostitute is holding in her hand a golden cup, trying to entice people to drink what the world has to offer. And interestingly, as we keep reading, we're told that this prostitute has a name. This prostitute sitting on the beast, this, this one great enemy of, of Christ, has a name. And in verse 5 it says, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon was once uh, the, the greatest and, 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 and most powerful nation on earth, biblically famous, most famous because of King Nebuchadnezzar. There, were, there when the prophet Daniel was exiled. It was known for its luxuries. It was known for its wealth. One of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there, the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. But not only known for its, its luxuries, but also for its oppression of the people of God. Proud oppression of the people of God. The prostitute here is likened to Babylon. But to reinforce that the idea that this, this tool of Satan called a prostitute sitting on a beast who has a name, Babylon, that to, to reinforce the idea that this enemy is a tool of Satan that is working in, 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 in all prominent cultures uh, with, through wealth and luxuries and influence, not just in literal Babylon, but in all prominent cultures. Notice that he doesn't only refer to Babylon here. Look at this, the description further given in verse 9, that this uh, part of this enemy, is, it, it mentions uh, seven mountains, on which the woman is seated. Seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And scholars widely acknowledge that's a reference to Rome of John's day, which sat majestically on seven hills and would have held out its own luxuries uh, and allurements of power. So I think all of this helps us to conclude that this prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast is an enemy of Christ that is present in every culture and every powerful nation and government, but from the first coming to the second coming of Christ that sets itself up against the Lord and against His people, which means, which means our own culture, our own culture and, 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 and wealth, just like all the rest. Think advertising, you know. Sometimes just think about the language used in advertising. It's really trying to build this idea of heaven on earth. Um, this is all that there is, and this is all you should want to entice us away from the Lord. If not to consciously leave, just to forget. Just to forget about the Lord, often without even noticing. Or just to keep people blind. Just keep people blind to the Lord and to His gospel. And are we not told this is exactly what Satan does in 2 Corinthians 4.4? 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. 
How has he blinded them? Often by treasures and pleasures. Uh, to keep them. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what did Jesus say in the parable of the sower? In Mark 4, 18 and 19, and others are, are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desire and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, I want you to notice something important here. We're told in verse 8 that everyone whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel. They will marvel at the pleasures and treasures of the world. And they will spend their lives to acquire and consume what the world has to offer. But note this too. We should not naively assume that Christians are completely safe and immune from this temptation to love and to marvel at what the world has to offer. Notice at the end of verse 6 that even John marveled greatly. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the allurements of the world are so strong. They are unrelenting. They are attractive. How do you fight it? How do you fight the allurements uh, to, to pleasure and treasure and power in the world? How do, you, how do you fight loving that, marveling at it, loving it? How do you fight that? You fight, you can't just say, stop, stop, heart. Stop, mind. You can't. So how do you fight it? You fight the love of the world with the love of Jesus. The more you, 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 the more you make use of the different means of grace that God has given us, we're talking about the means of grace in CBS this semester. What do I mean by that? that reading the Word is a means of grace to you. Not just reading it in your quiet time this morning, but gathering together as you're doing right now with the people of God, hearing the Word together, talking about the Word together, singing praise to His name, that songs that are rooted in Scripture, the fellowship of other believers, even the giving of our offerings, breaking my attachment to the world as this money leaves my hand or as I send it on Venmo and it leaves my account. Lord, break my heart's attachment to this world. These are means of grace. And, and the more you make use of these means of grace, the more you'll grow in love for Jesus, which will cause your love for the things of this world to weaken because you'll see them more clearly for what they are. Because you're more satisfied with Jesus, you'll be less hungry for the world. That's one reason. I love and I commend... Um, what is the name of this book now that I'm just about to commend? It's the John Piper book on fasting and prayer, A Hunger for God. It's, I think it's in that book, in, the, in A Hunger for God, where, where he, Piper makes the, the reverse point. He talks about the, one of the reasons we're, we don't often feel a deep hunger for God is because we have nibbled at the table of the world for so long that we're not hungry. But the, the more you, you're satisfied with Jesus, which you can't just like that and make it happen, you have to dive into the means of grace. And ha His grace p 
produces that into you. The more you're satisfied with Jesus, the less hunger you'll be for the world. And that brings us to one last observation that I alluded to earlier. One that is a, a good motivator to love Jesus more and the world less. And that, ob- that observation, the third point, put mildly is, sin always disappoints in the end. Sin always disappoints in the end. This chapter ends in both a surprising and a sobering way. I mentioned earlier that the, um, that the judgment against the enemies of God actually began before the return of Christ. So it's not like judgment entirely awaits his second coming. It will fully consummate at his second coming. But it starts before then. He is reigning now. And here's where we see that. Look at verse 16. There in verse 16 we read, perhaps surprisingly, the beast eventually will hate the prostitute. I mean, that is surprising. That is saying the nations and the cultures of the world will eventually grow to hate themselves. They will grow to hate what they have sought to find pleasure in. It just goes to show you that eventually the pleasures of the world will be shown to be exactly what they are. Empty promises. Empty promises. They always disappoint in the end. That's the surprising part to many. Sin looks, sin looks one way in the temptation and another way after the fact. That's what it is. Proverbs, and, and Scripture warns us of that. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. But the most sobering part of the end of this chapter comes when you realize even when that time comes and the, and the pleasures of sin for the world are shown to be the empty promises that they are, for, that, for many that time will be too late to repent. That's scary. Because notice, when the beast begins to hate the prostitute, the result is not that they come in repentance and faith to God, hey, we were foolish. No, they don't. But why don't they? It tells you in verse 17. Why don't they come in repentance and faith? For, because, God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind. That is, one mind in rebellion. Being one mind in hardness of heart, being of one mind in unrepentance, God put it in their heart. And here's here's the truth that verse helps us to remember. God is absolutely sovereign over human hearts. That is an encouraging truth when you're doing evangelism. It's a scary truth when you start thinking about His judgment. And it's not just this verse. Jot these references down. Don't take my word for it. Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. You see how it talks about Cyrus. Um, Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. Proverbs 21, 1. It's a good memory verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If it's true for the king, it's true for anybody. Ezra 1, 1. Ezra 1, 1. You know, God to fulfill the word he had spoken by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, stirred up the heart of King Cyrus to make a proclamation. Cyrus thought he did it. 
Cyrus thought it was his idea. He's a good dude. Why did you do it? Because God stirred his heart to do it. Here's the last one. Exodus 3, 21 and 22. Exodus 3, 21 and 22. And that's why it says here that God put it in their heart to stay in rebellion in him. That doesn't mean, when it says God put it in their heart to be of one mind, it doesn't mean that they were good and righteous and God caused them to be rebellious. They were already rebellious. God left them there. Right? Our hearts are not off limits to God. He can do with them and He does with them and turns them however He desires. And He is just to do so, even in judgment. He's just to do it that way. Uh, Because not only is God sovereign over our hearts, but His judgment, because sometimes His judgment comes er sooner and earlier than we thought it might. When people stubbornly and uh, persist in, in ungodly lives and ways of rebellion, Scripture tells us here, and perhaps places like Romans 1, three times in Romans 1, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. That's how God's judgment often comes now in hardening people further in the way that they were already going by their own choice. And he makes them eat the painful fruit of their own decisions. Well, as we close, this is, and I, I end there because that's how the chapter ends. So I, sorry, it's not on a more encouraging note. Come back next week. Um, as we do close, this is how William Hendrickson, whom I greatly commend to you as a, as a commentator, not only of Revelation, but of any book of the Bible. William Hendrickson summarizes these last two verses, or actually verses 16 and 17, not the last two, but 16 and 17. Here's what he says about those two verses and what it says. Revelation 17, 16 and 17 is a lesson for every day. It reveals the course of worldly individuals. First, they become infatuated with the pleasures and treasures of the world and harden themselves against God. Then they are hardened. And finally, when it is too late, they experience a revulsion of feeling. They are punished by the results of their own foolishness. And the positive spin we take away from that is this gives us all the more reason to take our discipleship and our pursuit of holiness and obedience seriously now and don't wait till tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for... um, A challenging word, a sobering word, a serious word, but a clear word. It's like I said, Lord, we left, I left so so much of this chapter unsaid, I confess, because I just don't understand it. I don't understand, Lord, everything in this chapter. I don't understand all the details and the ten kings and the horns and the was and is not and is to come and the eighth belonging to a seventh. I don't understand it and... But you're so gracious, even in a chapter like that, to make the main point so crystal and unmistakably clear. So, Lord, would you give us, like I prayed at the beginning, would you give us hearts to embrace these truths and uh, wills to obey whatever it is that you call us to do as a result. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.